Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening. Welcome to Club Book with Jason Mott. My name is Michael Kleber Diggs. I'm a poet, essayist, literary critic, and arts educator based here in St. Paul. It's my absolute pleasure to be here tonight uh, speaking with our featured author, Jason Mott. Before I introduce Mr. Mott properly, allow me just a moment to tell you a little bit about the unique series that's bringing him here. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, which is made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, which is part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Scott County Library is the co-organizer of events of tonight's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event. Jason Mott is the author behind Hell of a Book, winner of the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction. In a starred review, Jason, in a starred review, Publishers Weekly declared Mott's modern masterpiece a cinematic novel that tackles what it means to live in a country where Black people live life under the hanging sword of fear. In alternating and ultimately intertwined narratives, Hell of a Book follows the cross-country publicity tour of an eccentric novelist and the tale of a young Black boy whose world is turned upside down by a heinous but all too common episode of police violence. In addition to the National Book Award, Hell of a Book won the prestigious Sir Walter Raleigh Prize for Fiction and was selected by the Today Show for the popular Read Within a Book Club. The reason I'm smiling is because in the book, the author uh, says like, hey, when you go on the Today Show, it has to be like this. And then of course, the book gets selected for Read with Jenna on the Today Show. Mott's prior novels include his 2013 debut, The Returned, which appeared, which served as the basis for a high concept fantasy drama series called Resurrection, which was produced by Brad Pitt for ABC Studios. I have to point out that Mr. Mott is also a poet. 
and author of a couple of poetry books as well. So for run of show, uh, after we're just going to talk a little bit, and we hope to include some questions from all of you. So uh, I'll start with some questions, then we'll go to the audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them over to me. If you prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can send a private message to Club Book right here on Facebook, or send a message to clubbookmn at gmail.com. And before we get to the questions, I just have to say that associated with my um, uh, being asked to interview you tonight, Jason, I received a copy in the mail from the Friends of the St. Paul Library of Hell of a Book. I know it came from Red Balloon Bookstore. And <laughs> a few days later, I was visiting with a good friend of mine who gave me a copy because he read it and loved it. He thought I would love it too. And guess what? We've been friends for a long time. He did not get it wrong. I absolutely loved your book. It spoke to me on so many levels. And it's my pleasure to speak to you tonight, Jason. Thanks for being here. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, that's a great story. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And I'm glad your friend enjoyed the book. And I'm glad he recommended yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, so two for two that we know of. And it's probably the <laughs> National Book Award. It's probably bigger than that. Um, I have a few questions and, and I want to make sure that we're engaging with the audience as well. I look forward to their questions. Mm -hmm. um, fairly early on in hell of a book, the writer goes to San Francisco and there he meets Rennie. And Rennie is a limo driver uh, and media escort who takes the writer around to all of his scheduled appointments. Um, there's a character who appears with them called The Kid. And the day begins with a series of interviews at which the writer is asked, so what's the book about? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that was going to be my first question. <laughs> which, of course, it wasn't. But one thing that happens throughout the book is the writer is asked uh, at almost every publicity stop, so what's the book about? And we're always tempted to be asked that question, but I won't ask you that. I am curious, though. <laughs> um, I felt like we have Jason Mott, who has written a book called Hell of a Book. And in the book, there's a writer who has written a book called Hell of a Book. You are Black. <laughs> the writer is Black. Um, I think your tour for Hell of a Book is probably a little Zoom-oriented and a little less... Uh, <laughs> It's changing. I mean, it definitely began as a very Zoom oriented tour, um, but now everything is opening up. So like the month of March, um, I was on the road the month of March for, well, I was home. I put, it, I put it the other way. I was home for 10 days throughout the month of March. The entire rest of the month, I was on the road. So things are definitely back open again. There we go. Things are changing. There is, I think, kind of a sameness that settles in in our conversations. I know as an interviewer, I felt like the book had like a, almost a meta quality to it. <laughs> in a way, because I knew that I was going to be talking to you, I'm also in the book already. <laughs> Theoretically, maybe asking you all the same questions over and over. Um, that sameness, I feel like, results in some ways from um, the scope of our conversation. So we are talking about hell of a book, and that is an object with parameters and boundaries and um, I'm, I'm asking you questions kind of based on that book, but I do wonder a little bit if 
there was something in your past travels and book tours that wanted you to kind of lean into that that sameness and that monotony and that routine a little bit. Yeah, for certain. Um, so a lot of this book began in 2013 when my first novel, The Return, came out. Because <clears throat> the book came out and it had gotten a lot of success even before it came out because the TV show was coming down the pipe and it was just already building to be like a very awesome, you know, a very big, quote unquote, successful first book. And so the byproduct of that was that when the book finally launched, I was on the road for two months straight almost, just on tour, perpetually going. And it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. I'd never been on tour. I didn't really know what a book tour even was before that point, much less one of that, that level of intensity. So for two months, it was on the road of just pure insanity. And again, you do fall into this cycle of, you know, you're answering these same questions again and again. And like, there was a point where I woke up in a hotel room one night and I was answering an interview question in my dream. And I, I woke up, I literally answered the question out loud because I had been like asked it so many times that your brain, you become like a Pavlov's dog. You just get triggered to answer the question. And so at the end of those two months, it had been such a weird whack because there's so many misadventures that happened, so many funny things and strange things. It was just such a unique experience that I told my agent, I said, I want to write a novel about an author on book tour. I said, it's the craziest thing. I don't think anybody ever believe it. And she wasn't really a fan of the idea at the time, which is totally fair. But you, you, know, you push forward a few years and that's really where, that's where the seed of this novel began. Now, obviously it developed and changed a lot since then, but it began with that kind of frenetic first book tour. You woke up in the middle of the night answering an interview question. Did you know what city you were in? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's definitely, there were a few times on tour where I just, you lose track of the cities because, you know, people envision book tours as, you know, you're visiting, you know, the way you travel for vacation, you get to go and hang out and visit. And the reality is nothing like that. Like you land in a city, you see the airport, the bookstore, the hotel, and the taxis in between those things. Like that's really all you ever get to see. Um, people, you know, I would get home from traveling and I would run into friends and family like after the tour was over. They'd be like, oh, I heard you. I saw you were that you were in Philly. Did you go get a Philly cheesesteak? No, I got Philly snack machine, though. Philly snack machine was wonderful. You know, you were in New York. Did you go to New York, get a New York pizza? No, I got New York snack machine. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's it's it is such a like, you lose track of places and yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, oh, I believe it. There are three main characters in the book mm -hmm. the writer the kid and sit mm -hmm. toward the end of the novel we get an explanation after a fashion for why just to point it out two of the characters don't have a name mm -hmm. and the third one has a nickname that's mm -hmm. given to him by school bullies mm -hmm. um, so we don't know if it's matt and michael and marcus or three other people at all toward the end of the book we get a little bit of an explanation for why they're not named um i wonder if you could talk though a little bit about the decision there when you were at your writing desk crafting this novel um what was what was kind of behind that decision to 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 make these figures anonymous in some way or unnamed in in some ways so for a long time, I had been wanting to write a story about um, kind of an unnamed protagonist. I, I didn't know what the story would be, but I tried it a few other times on other projects. And, you know, they, it just didn't quite work out or it got shot down. It got shot down by editors or whomever, but like it just didn't go anywhere. 
And so when I started writing this, I was, it was a project that at the time, I, no one was going to buy. So I said, well, if no one's going to buy it, I'm just going to make it the fun thing I want it to be. So I started off just kind of taking it almost as a dare to see, like, can I maintain this anonymous character for the entire story and still make it intriguing and exciting? That's where it began. But then as the book evolved and, you know, I began to see what the book was really about. It worked on a very powerful thematic level. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, as it's talked about in the book, there is this sense of every man kind of component with the author and the kid and even to slit to an extent where all three of the identities kind of blend together. And the book has a lot of messages about the, un the anonymity, the forced anonymity and the forced unknownness of people of color and black people in particular, and how they all kind of blend together, even when they don't necessarily want to. And their, their true identity, who they actually are, is rarely seen. So it works on a very thematic kind of level. And it's interesting because when I was writing it, somewhere around like third or fourth draft, like still kind of early in the process, as I was just testing things out, um, I, I actually gave the character a name. I can't remember what the name was now, but like I actually did give the character a name because I was, I, I didn't trust myself. I was like, I, like, I got to get this guy a name. There's no way anyone's going to want to read it, this anonymous author. And so I wrote it for literally about two chapters where the character had a name. And I was like, no, this is a terrible decision. Like it just, it made the story so small and just, it made the story into something it never wanted to be. So I threw that out after like two chapters of writing it and kept it anonymous and it just, it blossomed outward from there. Jason, I had written some questions ahead of time, but I'm going off script right now. Cool. <laughs> That's <laughs> you, perfect. You said, you said a couple things there that really um, grabbed me. You said, I, I was just doing this for fun. Mm -hmm. um, in a previous interview, you, you mentioned, and it was with Matteo Ascarapur, who's written a book called Black Buck that I read and enjoyed. And um, you mentioned that after your first book, your first book is the last book that you write alone. Mm -hmm. And then after that, um, you know, you've maybe got a book deal that you're working through. You've got an editor there, an agent. They're both providing guidance on the project. Early on, you said, hey, I'm going to write a novel about a book tour. Your agent was probably like, ah, I feel like it's been done before. Uh, and then you decide, well, I'm just going to keep doing it for fun. And the book includes some weighty themes there's no question about that. And at the same time, it just radiates fun, um, particularly in the first, what I would want to say, two acts. Uh, it's, it's light and joyful and funny and comedic. And um, I just want you to talk a little bit about the creative process, the value of being unencumbered on a second project, being mm -hmm. able to kind of go into that fun, to give yourself props, like I'm not going to mention a name. Could you just talk about that a little bit sure yeah it wound up um it's funny because it began and through the process it was the most terrifying thing one of the most terrifying things i had done um because at that point i you know i am someone who exists like i'm a full-time author and i you know i want to keep doing that and but i'm also not like stephen king wealthy where like i'm, I'm not you know independently wealthy like i gotta sell books and i gotta do things i gotta make make sure i'm getting contracts so i suddenly was outside of a contract and my agent and I were talking and she said, you know, what do you want to do next? I said, I don't know. But I said that story about the author on book tour keeps coming back. And she goes, well, you know, she, she literally said like, I'm not really impressed by that idea, but if you want to write it, who cares what I think? Like go off and do your thing, which makes her a brilliant agent. And so suddenly I was out there and I had full carte blanche. Like, you know, mom gave me permission to do whatever I wanted, which I had, I kind of always had permission. I just didn't know it. So I just, I thought about who I was, 
and who like who I am as a person, like me in particular, and then try to tie that into who I was as a creative person, as a writer, as a novelist. And I wanted to include more of the real me, not in terms of facts, but in terms of themes, in terms of just sense of humor. Like I do not take myself very seriously. And yet I live in a world that is very serious all the time. And I'm someone who tries to balance those two. You know, I will write very serious, heavy, dramatic things as I'm watching tremors in the background. You know, I make sure that there's a balance between the humor in my life and the seriousness in my life. And I felt like I needed to include that in my stories. And I just, I was like, well, if no one else is going to read it, because I was positive, no one else would ever read this book. I said, I'm going to just write it to myself and I'm going to have fun. And so it became this weird thing where I was just, I would write the heavy sections for a while. And my, you know, I was like, well, I'm depressed now. I'm tired. I need to laugh. So I'm going to write just a funny section and just let it rock and see what happens. And I would do that. And then I would kind of trade between the two. And it was, it was really liberating, but it was also terrifying because I reached a point and I was, it's funny because I was texting a friend about this, a close friend I've had for years. And I told her, I said, no one's going to buy this book. I said, it's too weird. I said, there's too many things going on. There's just, there's comedy, there's humor, there's, you know, film noir, there's Nick Cage. There's all this kind of stuff happening. Like no one's going to want this book. And very encouragingly, she said, just, just keep writing it. I guarantee you to something work out positive. And I did. And it was, it was a, the toughest book I'd ever written, both emotionally, creatively, um, and in many other regards as well. But it was also the most fun that I've had writing in at least a decade, like, because no one was watching. It was just me and a page just playing together, having fun. And that was wonderful. You know, that duality between fun and terror, uh, comedy mm-hmm. and tragedy um, in a novel about the Black experience in America affects on a cellular level. Uh, I just, <laughs> I'm, I connect with so much of what you're sharing there. And I think I really kind of connected with that and the many moods of the book as I was reading it. Um, I have to touch on it because you brought it up. I also have to tell you that in like pre-conversation here in town, um, Nick Cage keeps coming up. So for me, for me, I'm reading the book. I'm experiencing the book. I have no idea what's coming. The author's on a plane and then all of a sudden Nick Cage is there and I was just, you know what I was just like, what? Like, um, what on, I, I was exhilarated. Um, and, and Nick comes in and he's awfully wise and, and also fairly <laughs> commanding, which is a super Nick Cage thing. So I'm going to start with my Nick Cage question. We might get some more. <laughs> um, my question is, what is the second best Nicolas Cage movie and why is it Moonstruck? <laughs> uh, it's funny. I just watched Moonstruck with some friends about a month ago. So that's very interesting that you brought that up. Um, Moonstruck is powerful. Moonstruck is a great movie. It's not my number two pick for Nick Cage movies, but I definitely see people. I see why they like it, though. Moonstruck is yeah, great. Now, I, I have to say, <laughs> I think Moonstruck is a movie that Nicolas Cage is in. Right. And he's a huge part of the movie. I'm not sure I would say it's a Nicolas Cage movie. No, no, it's very, to me, it's not. To me, it is, I mean, yeah, it's very much featuring Nick Cage in a yeah. very kind of strong role, but I would not think of it as a Nick Cage movie. Um, yeah. Although he, you know, it's a Nick Cage performance. I would definitely say that. You got that right. You got that right. <laughs> um, I, for, the, for the audience listening online, I think that Jason and I agree that at least if it's not the number one, 
Raising Arizona is in the conversation for the best uh, Nicolas Cage movie. My brother and I used to have it memorized. And I just have to say that closing poem, for me, it's a poem where he's writing a letter to Edwina. Yes. Uh, every time. But I. But in, in all seriousness, one of the things that happened for me when I got to Nick Cage in the book is that I had an exhilarating sense of you as someone who was going to let the story go where it wanted to go. You were going to mm-hmm. follow your imagination, your instincts, your creative impulses, and you were just going to let it be what it was. I felt completely energized by that. And also as a writer reminded, I think we've best served when we are a little bit unrestrained and, and able to follow our, our impulses. I just wondered if you could talk about that moment <laughs> and that decision. Yeah. It's funny like that, that has become like, that is to many readers, one of the defining moments of the book. And I'm so excited. And the irony is that moment came in at the 11th hour, like very late stage in the writing process. And it happened because that was my last moment of, I'm just going to make it my own because so I had written the novel, my agent had read it, her and I were doing some revisions on it. And we were like literally about a week and a half to two weeks away from trying to send it to publish. So we were like locking down everything final form. And that scene was not in the book. That scene had not appeared yet. Um, Nick, there were, there were Nick Cage references throughout the entire book. Like I was, but if I'm honest, like I was afraid, like I wanted to do that scene, but I was afraid to, I was still like, I can't put Nick Cage in this book. Like it's already weird enough. I cannot somehow add Nick Cage to this novel. So I was really afraid to add that. And so my agent and I were going back and forth. There was another scene that had been in the book previously, completely unassociated with Nick Cage. And my agent wanted the scene cut. She goes, you know, the scene is okay, but it's not moving the story forward. It's retreading stuff you've already said. She's like, I think you should just cut this entire scene. And I didn't want to cut the scene. I was being like a little petulant child. And I, I was, you know, giving some pushback. And she was making valid points. Like she was completely in the right. And I knew it, but I didn't want to agree to it. <laughs> so finally I said, I said, I'll make a deal with you. And I was again, I was being like a little kid. I said, if I cut this scene, I'm putting Nick Cage in the book. And she goes, <laughs> she was like, fine, as long as you can make it work, go ahead and do it. I was like, well, fine, I will. <laughs> so, so I spent about a week or almost a week and a half because again we were close on time and I just I wrote the scene in about a day and a half and I revised it for about four or five days or you know a week or so and I sent it to her and she was like perfect she's like why wasn't this always in here why, <laughs> why has this not been in the entire time because again that was and so that was one of those final lessons that I got from writing this manuscript that I'm now trying to take forward into like future projects, just life in general, that you've got to just follow your creative spirit. Like if your spirit is telling you to do this thing creatively, just do it. Don't worry about the ramifications. Just do it. That's one thing I definitely learned from that scene. You've seen uh, yet the movie, everything, everywhere, all at once. Not yet. I'm trying to wait for some friends to go see it at once. Um, Cause I, I got a lot of friends. Who, I've got a strong, strong Nick Cage group Cage, that I'm part of. <laughs> So we're trying to go, I think this weekend, we're going to finally break down and go see it. Okay. Um, I have two more questions and then I want to bring forward conversations from uh, the community. So if you have questions, please continue to add them to the chat. I've seen a couple. Um, I just want to steal a couple more uh, while I've got the the license. Um, 
one of the things that I noticed in Hell of a Book is there are a lot of nice people or a lot of seemingly nice people um, mm-hmm. early on. There's an angry man who's chasing the author. I'm, by the way, inserting myself not to give away any spoilers. Um, and, and the man is thought to be nice. He's described as probably a nice person. So it's <laughs> grandfather is seen as nice in his way. Uh, there's a couple in a Ford Fusion who encounter an unpleasantness. And they are nice people. Uh, later in the book, there's a police officer. And in a moment, we step away from uh, the, the scene, which is, which is a challenging scene um, and, and ends in an unexpected way. But, um, and, and we see the officer outside of that role as a father. And he is described as probably a nice person. I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about taking a moment to in- include that noticing uh, as you're describing characters in the book. Sure. Yeah. Um, there, yeah. The, Cause one of my life philosophies, I have a strong belief that most people are at their core, good people. Like I don't, I think there are very few, there are some who just move in the world with malicious intent, but I think that those are a minority number of people. I think the majority of people, have very good intentions. And there, now, of course, there is the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I believe that to be very true. And so I always want to always, I always try to give justice and a wholeness to the characters that I create. Um, I think this idea of like just the the evil villain who sits at home and like twists his mustache in and heckles to himself about the evil he's going to commit. I mean, those people do exist, but they're very few and far between. And so in my book, when I have those characters, whomever they may be, whether they be someone you just kind of come across or just someone that is larger in their role, I always want to give, kind of pay homage to the fact that we, I think all of us try to believe we're good people. That's what we're always kind of striving for. And I think there's a powerful conversation to be had about that because sometimes we can be good people and also be in the wrong or be mistaken or have you know, ideas that are not correct and are not positive. And we're still good people. We just also are projects in, you know, we're under construction. We're always trying to get better. We're trying to do things better. Yeah. And you, we can be good people and do very harmful things. Mm-hmm. The internet yes. is, is full of shouting people getting it wrong at Starbucks and, and yes. other places. Yes. It's also full of people who seem like pretty nice people who are advocating against critical race theory and the erasure of history and the burning of books and, and things that have harmful effects on other cultures, other stories, on what, um, on American history, on education mm-hmm. and otherwise. Um, and they'd probably help you out if your car was stuck in the snow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, they would help you out. They just don't, you know, They'll help you move your car. They just, they, you know, just don't live near me. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that mentality that goes on sometimes. Yeah. And it's very, that, that dissonance. I mean, that is part of the human experience. That is, we're all guilty of it in some regard, in some fashion. But I think the key is to, you can be a good person and still have flaws and try to make those flaws better and try to do less harm to other people. Um, I just think we have to all remember that. Yeah. Yeah. One more question for me, and then we'll turn to the audience. Um, toward the end of the book, 
there's a chapter that begins somewhere a black boy walks along a street at lone, alone at night. And I won't, again, no spoilers. Um, later we learn that the boy is walking alone and staring at stars. Um, let me say, I, I saw so much of you as a poet in that chapter. The language is just beautiful and um, poetic, which is not to say that that is the only place that happens in the book. There are several moments where language is poetic in its posture for me as a reader. As I read that last chapter, I, I thought about Albert Einstein. This is like me trying to like, you, I, you know, I wrote this question in it. Right <laughs> um, and he had this habit of writing letters to friends who had lost a, a near and dear person. Hmm. Um, and often, of course, he knew the person who had also passed away. And I um, recently encountered a letter that he wrote after the death of a friend of his named Michelle. He was writing to um, her, her widower. And, and Einstein wrote, Michelle has left this strange world a little before me. This means nothing. People like us who believe in physics know that the distinction made between past, present, and future is nothing more than a persistent, stubborn illusion. It felt compelling to me that in this chapter where a young boy is walking alone at night looking at the stars, which is putting me in kind of an astrological posture already. I'm, I'm calling to mind, and, and, and other things that are happening around that time, I'm calling to mind Einstein and this idea that there is no past, present, or future, um, that we experience it in a linear way, but it's far more complicated than that. Um, I was thinking both about this book and about your book, The Return, which I have not yet read and look forward to reading, but which includes kind of similar type of themes. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered about time and about your ideas of time and ancestors and also ourselves in the future. Um, and this idea that we kind of live on and go on, I, I think particularly for writers, but also just in general. And and if some of those thoughts and ideas framed your thinking about the book and frame your thinking in general. Yeah, very much so. Um, the Einstein letter is beautiful. And I've come across a few of those. I'm a bit of a science nerd, as a lot of people are. Um, and I've always been fascinated by just one. So I, I kind of view time through this very imaginative lens. Um, you know, the author in the novel has a bit of an overactive imagination. And that is very much kind of patterned after kind of how I feel that I exist and how I see the world, not quite to the level that the author in the novel is, but um, I do kind of find myself sometimes drifting. I daydream a lot. I'll say it that way. Like I drift a lot in my day-to-day -day life. And there are times when the past is very real, very vivid. And this idea of what I think is the future is very vivid. And when I write in particular, like it happens usually through my writing, I can float and drift between those places a lot more freely and kind of be back in this moment. Now, by the time it makes it to go to come through the machine of the writing process, it comes out very disguised. And for readers, they, they see nothing of the real, the real kind of underpinning that was there. But for me, the author in my existence, I get to relive a lot of moments of my life and connect with people who I have left behind or who have, who have left me behind and kind of gone on. 
And there, there's a really unique kind of component to that, a real beauty in that. And that's why I love writing. That's why I chose it as my art, or it chose me, however you want to say it. But like, that is why it persists as this thing that helps me not only figure out the world, but also helps me figure out myself and my place in this world. So for me, that's a lot of why I kind of tie those things together. That, I really appreciate it. Um, David Kay has asked, Michael mentioned one faux pas that book tour attendees commonly make, asking the uninspiring question. <laughs> so what's this book about? <laughs> you are no stranger to book tours, book club appearances, and so forth at this point. Do you have any do's and don't do's for the well-intentioned attendee? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I don't know because see, they're, they're, it's actually pretty difficult to answer because when people ask those questions, they typically come from a very kind place. Like no one's, no, again, no one's trying to be mean or, or whatever. I will say, um, if you're if you're attending an, an author event and there's a question that you feel may be very personal and maybe very private, don't ask that question. Find a slightly more generic question, a slightly more useful question, because and. You know, I kind of laugh now, but it's, it's actually quite serious because what happens is as an author, you oftentimes put yourself in the book and readers will see that. And readers kind of want to know a little bit more detail about that. And they will often ask you about very personal, somewhat painful moments of your life. And if it were just happening once on occasion, it's fine. When you do like multiple appearances over an extended period, like it can really catch up to you. So I would say, you know, just again, definitely feel free to ask the author questions, but when there's, there's something that you feel might be a soft touch point, just let it ride, let it pass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another question is you mentioned having an honest, but evidently good agent who wasn't initially sold on the project. What turned him around? Can you tell us your journey toward becoming a published author back in 2013 ish? Yeah, sure. Um, so like I said, my agent and I, like she and I have been together since 2011. Like she is 10 years now, the longest relationship of my life with my editor. <laughs> um, she's, she's absolutely wonderful. I cannot stress enough how terrific she is. So honestly, what turned her around was the final products. Like that's really what turned her around. Um, and like I said, she told me, she said, hey, if you want to write this book, like I'm not inspired by the idea, but if it inspires you, who cares? Go off and write it. And I did like I didn't really contact her except for the occasional email for about a year and a half, like because that's how her and I kind of work, where she lets me just go off and do my thing. And if I have problems or questions, of course, she's always available. But we don't really contact each other much in terms of work things. So I was off in the wilderness in my cave writing the book and I turned I finally finished it and I waited until I was completely finished, had revised and polished and had friends test, tested out and I sent it to her. And I said, here it is. I said, it's the whole author on book tour thing, but it's turned into something very different. I said, I don't know if it's working or not, but here it is. And I gave it to her. And about a month later, because it takes her time to get to, you know, read through things, get back to me. She emails me back. She goes, oh my God, this is amazing. I love it. Like this is, she just fell in love with it. So the work is what turned her around, honestly. And then she began to believe in it more than I did. Because when we first started shopping it around, I didn't expect the book to find a home. I thought it was just too weird. And she was a thousand, she said, no, this book is something special. Like it's going to do well. And so she believed in it more than I did, which is terrific. So my path to being a published author, you go back a few, you know, many years now um, to like late 2000s. I graduated from creative writing with a degree in like 
and poetry and I would went to answer phones at Verizon Wireless because that's what you do. But I had a strong work ethic. So I wrote, I wrote a manuscript every year. I would like I literally, I had a 12 month deadline where I had to have a new book, a new full length novel finished every single year. And I sent out multiple novels about four times, like over the course of four years and they all got rejected. Like they just, no one wanted to publish them. And it was good because they were terrible books. <laughs> At the time they felt great, but looking back on them now, they were terrible books. They were learning experiences though. And so finally I finished this manuscript, which eventually became The Returned. Um, I started trying to find an agent who covered books, who represented books that were similar to it or just thematically was about like personal loss and grief and you know coping and kind of magical realism. And I found her. And so I query letter her. I said, hey, I've got this book that you might like. And she did. And things kind of started working out great from there. I think um, agents play an essential role mm -hmm. um, in the process. And um, as a writer, I always want to think about what I'm doing. I want to write. Yeah. I want to be as free from external considerations as I can be. And when it comes time to think about the book and its place in the world, mm -hmm. um, I want to rely on people who know about that and who can yes. give me guidance on moments that are probably not working quite well yep. um, and, and help kind of connect it to the right publisher. Um, yeah, exactly. And like I said, that's why I love my agent so much. Like she, she makes my life so much easier because I, I, I just write the work. And yeah. I focus on the work. I don't have to worry about finding publishers. I don't have to worry about editors. That whole machine, she kind of stands as this barrier in front of me. And she takes care of as 99% of all that stuff. Things I don't even know about she's taken care of. It which frees me up to just do the writing. And then she's a very engaged kind of um, agent where I send her the manuscript. And she and I will revise for three, four, five months before we even try to send it out. Because she will see where things can be strong, made stronger. And that is in infinitely helpful for me. Um, and it, it makes the writing better. Like agents and editors in particular are like unsung heroes of quality writing. Like people get the book and they think you wrote it this way. It's like, no, plenty of people helped me make this book as good as it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have a question here. Now that you're a National Book Award winner, have you learned of any famous fans of your books, folks who have made you say, whoa, they read my book? <laughs> Um, besides, uh, besides Brad Pitt, I guess I would say, who, who we never yeah, the whole, the, the Brad Pitt thing was pretty, pretty fascinating. That was, that's just very weird. Um, yeah, like the Jenna Bush thing was very surprising and very fascinating. I've had a lot of other authors who I kind of admire who read the book and who liked the book, which is equally fascinating and amazing and weird. Um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had a few celebrities here and there kind of, um, tweet me. I had, um, Jason Blum of like Blumhouse Productions, like the, the horror movie, like who's done all these amazing movies. Like he tweeted at me maybe two weeks ago, how he just finished reading the book and loved the book. And I was just blown away. I was like, holy crap. Like this guy makes the scariest, awesome movies and has been doing so for a decade now. Like, I love his movie so much. And he, yeah, he just, he was a fan of the book and wanted to say hello. And that was just terrific. Um, yeah. Winning the National Book Award is very weird. Like it feels very, very strange. And I still, I still struggle to believe it actually happened. It's, it's obviously sunken in a bit, but it's still very surreal. Um, I felt like Hell of a Book had some cinematic, cinematic qualities. Um, I know one question that kind of came in in advance of our visit today was, 
um, if you if you thought about or had any conversations about hell of a book as a movie. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some. I'll say there's definitely some conversations happening. Whether or not those conversations will evolve or how they evolve is all very kind of up in the air. Um, but yeah, like there's there's definitely been conversation. Like I I wrote the book not trying to you know I never think about Hollywood when I'm writing a novel because writing a novel is hard enough in and of itself without trying to plan on trying to gear it towards any you know potential option rights or anything like that. And so the prospect of it turning into something else is always very surprising and fascinating to me. So I hope it winds up becoming something that other can just bring in more people to the story. That's really the goal. I just want to make sure that the story itself is told in whatever format it needs to kind of go to, to get more people aware of like the themes and the subject and all the things that the book is trying to talk about. I want this conversation to be as big as possible. And so hopefully maybe one day TV or film or whatever can, you know, make that happen. That too. Um, a prominent motivation for me tonight is not about me, but for me in my writing is to to have conversations that matter to me. Yes. Um, it is very clear uh, throughout Club Book. I understand that the, the writer in the book is not Jason Mott, but there are, are also a lot of similarities. Yes. In, in terms of lived experience. And I would say that for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for For all Black people, for people of color, um, <clears throat> there are a lot of important conversations that we want to have and the opportunity to slow people down, to get them to view it a little bit differently, mm-hmm. to share a kind of perspective. There's a moment in the book where um, uh, I'll just say a white person is in conversation with the writer and says, essentially slavery was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a question that comes up in the course of our life there are other moments that happen the writer returns to the hometown and he's successful and how can there be racism in the world if, if this <laughs> if this person made it right exactly like we're yep. post-racial look yep um and, and, and a lot of other kind of very important questions that felt urgent for you for jason mott in terms of the creation of them and and of course, you hope that uh, as many people as possible will have access to those ideas. Yeah, those very much so. That's that's the goal. It's just uh, that's the goal of any writing is to kind of have those conversations. I think to start those conversations. Yeah. Um, someone wants to know if you were inspired by Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, yes and no. Like, there's definitely some themes in the book that kind of radiated out from that. I read I read Invisible Man decades ago, like late high school, like just after high school. Um, and I remember parts of it. So it very much kind of connects and radiates through that. Um, but a lot of the the invisibility component that comes into the story, that is pulled a lot from my own kind of childhood where, you know, I was the kid who, I was the quiet, weird nerd kid who was kind of bullied a little bit too much. And so I always wanted to disappear. That was the thing I just, I always wanted to just be invisible and disappear. And so that became part of the story. Yeah. And and I think for for Black people in America, there's back to that kind of duality there's mm-hmm. invisibility and the desire to be invisible and there's hyper visibility yes and all of the the risks and harms that are potentially associated with that and, and, and it's kind of navigating both of those it, it occurred to me that an author and a person of fame on a publicity tour mm-hmm. um, where attention is the entire goal 
really pairs well with a novel where there's also this desire to be invisible. Yep. <laughs> um, the next question is, hell of a book is a hell of a name. I'm, I'm reading it as it's written. <laughs> Did you choose the title yourself or does an author's people workshop those or, or did people workshop it? Was it the name of the project from the get-go? So, um, yeah. So funny. Here's a fun piece of trivia that you will never be asked in your life, but here it is. Um, all of my novels have been titled by someone else. I am terrible at titles. I just am. I don't know why. I can do the thing that comes between the pages, but the front page I cannot do to save my life. Um, so it's funny. So The Returned, that was my agent title that my second novel and third novel were both titled by my editor. Cause I, again, my, and I submit, I'm, I'm submitting titles this entire time and they're all getting shot down because in retrospect, they are pretty bad. So funny thing with hell of a book was we, we you know, we were very late stage in the process and my agent, again, we've been together 10 years. She knows I'm bad with titles. She gave me a month. She was like, we're going to send the book out in about a month. So I need you to come up with whatever best titles you got and we'll try to figure something out. I said, okay, cool. So for a month, I just thought about ideas and try to come up with something. And like a weekend, a week to go, I give her this list of like 15 different titles. Cause I'm just, I'm just shotgunning. I'm gonna hit something here on the wall. I'm just throwing stuff out. <laughs> she, she looked at them and she goes, they're all okay. <laughs> she was trying to be nice, which is her. That's like code for this is terrible. Um, she goes, there's like three or four that aren't the worst. So I'll, so she sent them around to some people. Um, and she said, what do you guys think about these titles? And when she also did this, she sent out or she, she sent around like a title and just called it hell of a book. And so she sent this to other people and they all kind of written, you know, they all kind of got back to it. And all of them were like, hell of a book's the best title by far. And so when she came back to me, now don't be wrong, like in the manuscript, the book the author's written was called Hell of a Book. So Hell of a Book was already in the manuscript. <laughs> so my agent comes back to me and she goes, she goes, yeah, your titles were not very popular with the people I talked to, but Hell of a Book seems like the title to go. Like it's already in the book. So why not make it the title of the book? And I've, I fought this vehemently. I said, no, I don't want to call my book hell of a book because one, that is the most arrogant title that I've ever heard for a novel. Um, and I am not that kind of a person. And I remember a few years back, I think 2013, 2014, somewhere around there, Dave Eggers wrote Heartbreak, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Staggering Genius. Yes, which is another just like amazing top tier title. But I remember when that book came out and I saw it in the library in the bookstore I was just like, are you kidding? Like, are you really going to call your book that? And of course you read it and it's phenomenal. Like, but, yeah. and also the title is very tongue in cheek. And so, because Dave Eggers is a master of that. And so my agent, <laughs> I fought this for like a, a few days and my agent goes, well, she goes, I think the title works. Everyone else thinks the titles work unless you have a better one, which I know you don't. <laughs> you have a better one. I think we should go with this in the submission process. And the compromise was, um, so when you read Hell of a Book, yep. if you open I, it to the I first page. I saw yeah. this. Yes. Let me get the page here. So if you open it to the first page, I think yep. no one can see that. Maybe, maybe you can hold it up. No one can see it on my screen. It's all blurred out. 
Yes. So there's a longer title. <laughs> so it says hell of a book or the altogether factual, holy bona fide story of a big dreams, hard luck, American made kid, American mad kid. Right. So that was my title. <laughs> yeah. That, that was All literally right. the title I was going to call the book. And that's why my agent is better at what she does than anybody. So, Jason, at some point in the future, time is not linear. So it actually might be happening now. I'm going to run into you somewhere. And we're going to have coffee or beverages of some kind. And I'm going to say, I want to get this right. Hell of a book was already in the book. <laughs> you didn't think of hell of a book as the title. Your agent said, let's call the book hell of a book. <laughs> and you thought it was a terrible idea. I told you, I can, I can do everything <laughs> between the flaps, between the covers, like between the front cover and the back cover. I can do all of that moderately well the front cover i cannot do to save my life that is my weakness and you know achilles had his you know he had his achilles i got my that's my achilles i cannot do a title to save my life every writer does exactly and you just every have to own it and live does. up to it and in addition to agents helping position and and find a home for books i think they also identify areas where yes you know, exactly right <laughs> and, Agents are like know, coaches. They're like they're like coaches. Like they know you better than you know you. And you're like, mm -hmm. coach, I can, I promise I can do that. No, you can't. We're gonna bring yeah. somebody else in to do this. That's not your strong suit. You're great at these things over here, but over here is not your strong suit. And that's okay. You're still yeah. you're still awesome. You just yeah. don't do this thing very well. <laughs> in the chat, we have a question that was also a, a question that kind of came to us in in advance. We were heading toward our conversation tonight, and it is. Hell of a book asks the reader to contend with and fill in certain gaps where reality is unknown or maybe unknowable. When crafting the book, did you have those ambiguities in mind the whole time? Or did you think up a more detailed and definitive story and then pair it back to achieve your nice, sparse narrative? Yes, no, it was those gaps were there from page one, sentence one, letter number one. Like I knew that I wanted the story to be an odd duck as much as I could make it that. And I wanted to, I'm someone, again, I don't, I don't knock direct linear narrative, realistic based stories. I, I love them. Some of my favorite, like I love Cormac McCarthy a lot. Like I love authors who can do that, but I began to realize that's just not my voice. And again, that's not distracting from that genre and that skill and that, that ability it's just not where I'm happy. Like I can do it. It's just not where I'm happy and enjoying myself. And since this was the novel that I knew I was going to write for me and I was going to have fun with it, I finally was just like, no, I'm throwing out all of that stuff. Even anything close to real world similar, you know, similism, I'm going to throw that out and I'm going to just have fun. And I'm going to make, have these gaps and they're going to be imaginative. And I'm going to still try to bring the reader through that, to have these emotional connections where when, when logical, when logical kind of connections don't appear, I want to have these emotional and intellectual connections to fill, fill that gap in and try to bring people through and give them an experience they haven't quite had. Because I knew for me, the topics, the topics in Hell of a Book are not new. Nothing in terms of like what the book is trying to discuss is new. This is hundreds of years of American discussion going on that everyone from Martin Luther King to to Ta-Nehisi Coates, like everyone, like it, it, there's a huge breath. Marcus Garvey, I mean, you name it, these topics have been discussed by others, but I had not, I did not have any examples of them being discussed in this way. And I knew 
that was how I wanted to do it. I didn't want to be those other authors. I love and worship Toni Morrison's writing, but I'm not trying to be Toni Morrison. I want it to be who I am and have it be strange and beautiful and com comedic at the same time and weird and absurdist. Like one thing that I, I find myself kind of thinking about a lot right now is the lack of absurdist black authors. Like black writers don't get to be absurdist. We only get to be very serious and you know, critical race theory, you know, you know, we talk about race and it's like, what happened to just being absurd and surrealist? Like we have, where are the surrealist black author voices? Where are the absurdist black author voices? They're, they're few and far between. Like I cannot name very many of them. And so for me, it was a chance to really break out of that and make it my own. So that was there. That was contingent upon everything from the very beginning. One of the experiences I had as a reader is in that uncertainty, kind of feeling a little bit like I had imagination as a condition myself. Yes. Um, is this really happening? Did I miss something? <laughs> um, is Nick Cage really here? <laughs> or am I? Yeah. So it's, it's and, and I think that that's a great way to kind of bring the reader into that perspective. Good, good. That that was the entire goal. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, so I'm 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 realizing I'm missing a couple of questions kind of here and there. Here's one uh, that with kindness, often authors are often asked, but I'd love to kind of know your thoughts on it. Sure. Um, what advice do you have for aspiring authors? The best advice that I always try to give aspiring authors is be patient with yourself above everything else be patient the the journey of writing is much longer than people think um writing and growing becoming a good writer grabbing you know accumulating skill as a writer does not happen quickly for anyone it takes time and too often we put this weight upon ourselves that you know we're writing this main it's like sometimes it'll be our first novel we're writing our very first novel and we put this pressure on ourselves. Like it's got to change the world and maybe become a million copy bestseller. And we put all these unrealistic expectations upon it. And I, the metaphor I always tell people is if this, you know, if we were trying to be carpenters and we had to build a table, you would be happy if that table just stood up and didn't kill anybody. Like it'll be a little bit crooked, a little bit wobbly, but if it stood on his own legs, you would be thrilled with that. And you'd be proud of that. And you should be. It's the same thing with novels. Um, do not think that you have to do this novel the first time out. I always tell people the return, my debut novel was not my first time writing a book. It was about my fifth manuscript. So I'd had four, if not five books before that, that were not good. And that's just, that's how it is. They felt good at the time because they were great learning experiences. So the best advice I can give, be persistent, de you know, develop good work ethics, write every day when you can, but even more important to that, be patient with yourself and give yourself time. And it doesn't matter if you're 25 years old or 55 or 75, writing is a thing that you actually age into. I think the average age for debut authors now is like late forties almost. So like you have time, no matter who you are, like take your time, be patient with yourself. I'm gonna to try to sneak in one more question. Let's uh, do it. And it is, where, when, and how did you learn you were in the running for the National Book Award? I'll also ask where, when, and how did you learn you were shortlisted? And then where, when, and how did you learn that you'd won? 
Oh yeah, this is a great story. I was <laughs> glad you tell this one. Um, <laughs> so, so the book came out in June, and typically what happens in publishing, there's like a two month window where your book is going to do whatever, whatever your book does happens in the first two months. And so by like late August or so, the book is starting to fade off, and it was fine. I was happy with how the book had done. And I started writing my next project and working on other things, kind of putting it in my rear view for a little bit. And in I think it was like late September or mid September. Uh, it was a Friday morning. I get an email from my editor and he says, hey, can we jump on the phone? At, uh, we have a Zoom call at 1025 this morning. And it was weird because it was like eight o'clock already. And I was like, why do you want to? And why exactly 1025? This is very strange. And he goes, there's some stuff going on with the paperback that we need to talk about. So let's just, you know, it won't take very long. Let's do a quick call at 1025. It's like, OK, fine. So like, I, I, don't have, I didn't have internet at home at the time. I had to go somewhere and do internet. And so we get on the call. <laughs> he goes, he goes, this has nothing to do with the paperback. <laughs> he goes, you just got long listed for the National Book Award. And I was stunned. I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, no, this is, he's like, news comes out at 1030. He said, we've been sitting on it for a whole day. We couldn't tell you about it, but you've been long listed for the National Book Award. So I, you know, I did like five backflips, just kind of lost my mind for about 10 minutes. And that was so unbelievable. And I knew, I was like, well, I'm never going to win it, but it's pretty amazing to be long listed for the National Book Award. And then, so they, they told everyone the, the shortlist announcement comes, I think it was sometime in October, like a month before beginning of October. So like, so, you know, stay tuned for that. And early October, my girl and I are driving back, my girlfriend and I are driving back from uh, New Orleans from kind of hanging out at an event. And my phone rings, my cell phone rings and I answer the phone and it is Ruth from the National Book Foundation saying, congratulations, you've been shortlisted for the National Book Award. And I was like, what? I'm in the car screaming. My girlfriend's driving. Thankfully, otherwise would have crashed. So I'm in the car just screaming and freaking out. And again, I was like, well, I'll never win it, but it's great to be nominated for shortlisted. So then you fast forward to the night of the event and we're, I'm in the room and they're going through the, 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 the finalists and kind of talking about each book. And I'm sitting there watching it. And in my brain, I was crafting what I call my apology posts because I had so many friends and family who had like taken the night off from work to sit home and watch the event and were rooting for me. Yeah. And I felt all this pressure because I was like, they're going to sit here and watch me lose. And that's going to be sad, which is totally the wrong way to think about this. But that's where my brain was at at the time. And I was like, well, and so as they're reading the names, it's like, well, I got to figure out how to type this apology thing. And they said, you know, hell of a book. And I was, I was like, what? And <laughs> So it was, it was so unbelievable. And then I got, I finished up there. My phone was having seizures for the next out, next 24 hours of people calling and congratulating. The greatest moment was the very, so I didn't go to bed till like three or 3 AM that night. Like I was just amazed. I woke up the next morning and the very first thought that I had when I opened my eyes was that was the coolest dream I've ever had. Like I just dreamed that I that was really cool. And I laid there for about two minutes and my brain said, check your phone real quick. I, th I think just check your phone. And I picked my phone up and all the messages are still there. And it was like, oh my God, I actually want it. So it's been pretty amazing ever since. And that was the most meta thing. Yes. Because for a second, I'm like, did he win it? Yeah. Or did, <laughs> or did the writer in Hell of a Book win it? Exactly. That was, it was, it was so wild. Um, yeah, that was that was the coolest moment. My brain was honestly like, that was a really good dream. I was like, yeah, that was a cool dream. Yeah. And then turns out I yeah. actually had it on it. Jason Mott, thank you 
so much for tonight. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this book, which I enjoyed and admired and was profoundly moved by. I have to say for all of our friends listening in Minnesota, please, please, please read this book. I'm gonna share just one thought along those lines. Uh, in a previous interview, Jason, I know you said that you were writing this and working on Hell of a Book around the time that George Floyd was murdered. Um, in the book, and, and trust me readers when I tell you, uh, it, 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 this is not a spoiler, but there also is a moment that calls to mind Philando Castile and, and um, that sad chapter in Minnesota's history as well. Um, the perspective that is shared here, the lived experience of the writer and of black people in America uh, is crafted in a way that is compelling and undeniable, sharp and joyful and difficult. And uh, the ability to navigate all those things left me in awe. I've completely enjoyed our visit tonight. Thank you so much for being part of it. Jason, thank you again so much. A real honor and pleasure to speak with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was absolutely terrific. And thank you all for coming out and happy reading in whatever you are reading. Take care. That wraps up our Scott County Library event with Jason Mott. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with James Rollins. Few authors today boast the cross-genre appeal or international following of novelist James Rollins. He continues his number one New York Times bestselling Sigma Force adventure series with Kingdom of Bones, which hit shelves in April. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.